Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the A16Z Clubhouse Room, where we cover the future of bio and health tech in a loosely structured interactive discussion. I'm Vinnie Tagarwala, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and with me tonight are my A16Z bio colleagues, Julie Yu, Jorge Conde, and we'll miss VJ tonight as he's spending some well-deserved spring break time with his family. Today, our special guest is my friend and former Stanford co-resident, actually, Dr. Connie Chen. Connie is Chief Medical Officer at Lyra Health, where she currently leads product, clinical operations, and research. Lyra is a leading company that um, most of you will, have, will, will know about in the employer-facing mental health space that's really kind of seen remarkable growth and traction over, over the last several years. Prior to joining Lyra, Connie was also the co-founder and chief medical officer at Vita Health, um, which now in hindsight looks like a company that was very, very early in the digital health world, providing virtual care management and behavior, behavior change support um, for patients in, in a variety of health conditions. Connie's a board-certified internal medicine physician with roots at both UCSF, where she attended medical school in Stanford, where we trained together in internal medicine. And our goal today is really to frame a discussion about what actually makes digital health different from traditional healthcare delivery, um, especially in a world where so many so-called traditional providers um, are offering virtual care and telemedicine options as the norm. Connie has built multiple digital healthcare delivery organizations, so <clears throat> I'm really excited to hear her thoughts. We'll, um, we'll plan to have kind of an organized discussion um, for the first half hour or so, and then we'd love to bring as many folks into the conversation as possible. And so we'll leave some time at the back half of the hour to bring up speakers from the audience. Just a quick note that the conversation um, is being recorded. And so uh, if you are, for those who are coming up to chat by doing so, you are consenting to us potentially using your words and profile image in a future recording related to the event. All right, let's get started and welcome Connie. Thanks, Vanita. It's really great to join today. Um, I will say this is my first clubhouse ever. So hope welcome, welcome. welcome. <laughs> we can hear you loud and clear, so um, you're going to be great. Um, so let's start with just that core question. Um, what is digital health and what are the features of digital health? that actually really, when it comes down to the nitty gritty, makes it different from so-called traditional healthcare services. And then one way to frame this discussion is just to look at kind of how companies are valued, right? In the digital health world and the, in the tech-enabled services world, we're giving companies 10, 20x um, multiples over revenue uh, as we think about valuation. And that's just pretty fundamentally different from, from what we see in the traditional healthcare services world. It's a great question. I don't know if I, I don't think I'm going to cover it from soup to nuts, but I think there were two um, aspects that I thought would be interesting to speak to. Obviously, this being a health tech discussion, there's two core parts of it. There's the healthcare and the tech part of it. So I'd say um, the two ways of looking at the, the role of technology enablement in digital health is really where technology is linear and then where technology really is breakthrough. So, you know, when I think about areas where technology is linear, it is, it is where a lot of health tech companies are either leveraging often third-party services. There's really no need to really build de novo in a lot of these areas where you have um, things like Twilio for your video infrastructure, but you're essentially taking what um, 
you know, brick and mortar practices have always done, which is deliver uh, patient sessions with the clinician in a session based model and port it to digital. Right. So that's a video session where uh, you enable the, the patient and the provider to connect remotely and do all the same things that you would have done in a traditional um, clinic. I think this is where, um, you know, Vanita, to your question about is that sufficient? I would argue probably not, right? Because really what you're doing, um, there are some gains when you are uh, moving in that model. Uh, for example, there's more liquidity uh, in a, from a provider perspective. You know, you can kind of access a broader provider pool than those providers who might reside within a reasonable driving distance to a specific clinic location. And there's also client liquidity you can aggregate demand and match that with supply. But, you know, what you're really doing is pretty limited in terms of actually transforming what you do in terms of the care model. A lot of what we obsess about at Lyra and what I think a lot of really transformative digital health companies are doing is really taking a step back and really breaking out what are the components of care delivery in whatever domain I'm focused in. For us, it's mental health. Um, that we know based on the clinical literature and our collective clinical experience to be actually therapeutically potent. Like what are the things that actually drive clinical improvement, uh, whether it's like a cl core clinical activity or something that's kind of related to patient engagement and provider enablement? And how do I take a step back and think if I were not bounded by the way care is delivered today, how would I deliver that piece of the um, patient experience? Is it something that I deliver through synchronous video? Would I use an asynchronous provider-led touch point? Would I use, you know, self-guided content? Um, it, what type of provider do I use? Am I triaging them to um, a clinical specialist, a generalist, or a paraprofessional? And I think when you start to unbundle the care experience that way and then kind of rebuild it, with a focus just on what is efficacious, you have the opportunity to then leverage technology in a creative way to deliver care more efficiently, to drive better outcomes, to build more provider access and supply, and ultimately you know, reduce costs for the healthcare system. And that is a type of value creation that I, and I think many others believe, um, warrants enables the larger multiples that you see in health tech. I love the idea of yeah, non-linear um, sort of unfair advantages that the tech gives you. And, and one way I think about that is if you put yourself in the shoes of any um, so-called traditional provider and you ask how much of that can, can an individual practitioner invent on their own, you know, the answer is it's limited because a lot of what you're describing requires collaboration across providers, requires technology infrastructure to, to coordinate multifaceted care. But it does beg the question, you know, well, let's say, you know, a big health system, they're going to invest in those technology layers. And so how tech enabled do you think traditional providers can get over time by buying technology that provides access to exactly the same care model reimagination that that you're describing? Will, will they get there? Or, you know, as you think about it at Lyra and you think about who your competitors are as you, you know, as you grow, do the traditional providers come to mind? I guess, 
it's a, it's a fascinating question. I don't know. You know, I think we do operate in a very unique space. Behavioral health is incredibly disaggregated. So whereas there has been a lot of consolidation as it relates to a lot of other parts of healthcare, um, the vast majority of outpatient mental health care is still delivered by, you know, a community-based provider in a solo or small group private practice. So, you know, we don't see as much, we don't see the incumbents, at least the traditional health systems incumbents playing in, in behavioral health as much as at least to my, to my knowledge. It's also an area that if you're just a really ruthless kind of uh, financially oriented incumbent, you know, traditionally the, the, the margins in, 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 in um, behavioral health are not that great unless you really figure out that kind of breakthrough technology component. And I think the other part of this is just the classic innovators dilemma, right? I think a lot of, um, you know, technology is a big part of it. The other part of it is technology that's integrated into kind of the clinical care system and then tied to reimbursement models. So I think mm -hmm. it has to be technology tied to being in a position where your payers are willing to pay you differently for better quality or better outcomes um, that enables and finances some of that innovation. Hey, Connie, um, this is Julie here. In terms of the, you know, one of the, one of the big promises of digital health and the use of technology in these new care models is the ability to both personalize the care model for individuals relative to what works versus not for, you know, person A versus person B, but also potentially reach segments that would otherwise not get access to care um, if we were relying solely on these more traditional, you know, health systems and providers. Um, are you aware of any research that sort of speaks to that yet around how digital health has been able to, you know, sort of provide access to, to net new populations that have previously either not benefited from care that they've delivered, uh, that, that, that they've received um, directly from traditional providers or, or simply had not been able to get access to? And then, you know, how does, um, you know, someone like Alira think about segmentation in that regard? Like, is that a core principle of how you think about the leverage that you get out of taking a more tech-enabled approach versus versus not? Absolutely. I'll, I'll answer it on the client side and the provider side. You asked about clinical literature around kind of expanding access with digital health. I can't really cite anything specifically, but I can speak to our personal experience, which is that we see, at least qualitatively and anecdotally, a lot of clients who report uh, seeking care remotely whereas they would have felt either more intimidated um, from kind of like a activation perspective, having to drive to an in-person appointment, or they uh, just felt that it was easier, right? You could save the commute time back and forth. Mental health care tends to be a little bit more intensive. So unlike a primary care doctor where you might go once a year or twice a year, um, you know, a course of therapy could be 16 sessions. So you're really committing to um, something weekly or biweekly for, for months at a time. And that's quite a big commitment that can be daunting and can be a barrier to care. So we have seen um, digital, particularly video sessions, be um, a great enabler um, as it relates to uh, patients accessing care. On the provider side, I think um, two, two answers to your question. One is... Um, just probably the greater transition we've seen with COVID is in part, yes, clients are doing more digital and video-based care, 
But I would say that clients were more open to some degree to video-based care pre- pre-COVID than many of our clinicians were. There mm-hmm. was a lot of, um, not skepticism, but just worry, particularly in mental health, that there is a lot to the in-person interaction, ability to read people's body language, being in the same, I think a lot of the traditional teaching is you're in the same room as the patient, really kind of uh, being able to kind of engage with them um, in that way that I think a lot of clinicians were nervous about um, video. We've seen obviously (laughs) with COVID, basically all clinicians went to video, um, at least in the world that we sit in, which is really, you know, outpatient office-based care. And, you know, the vast preponderance of providers have, have really loved that transition. They have experienced firsthand how how deep of a rapport you can really uh, establish with patients remotely. And they are seeing, you know, just patients achieve tremendous gains um, by video. And I think that's been very empowering. I think that the second part of your question is a, around access uh, goes back to just fundamental limitations in provider supply and where technology can be really enabling. I think um, we think about that in two ways. The first being triage, which is, you know, there's roughly 600,000, you know, therapists in this country. We aren't really creating more of them each year. I mean, we're creating more of them linearly. Like there's not more, um, like um, the equivalent like of a therapist residency programs um, being created every year. So the supply is um, not growing fast enough to keep up with the explosion of demand in this country as it relates to the need for mental health care. So one way technology can really facilitate access is to really help triage people to the right level of care. So, you know, there we see a really wide range of clinical presenting issues. So all the way from people who are dealing acutely with us trying to manage through a stressful situation to people who have extremely severe depression, who are suicidal, who are presenting with things like OCD, PTSD, bipolar disorder. Um, so really making sure that we can really save our therapists and physicians for our most complex clients and really try and support uh, clients with mild, milder issues with modalities like coaching or content if that's something that they're willing to engage in on more of like a self-care basis. And then the second is really um, trying to make the care more efficient on the provider side. So, you know, if you wind the clock back 100 years and think back to the kind of traditional psychoanalysts um, that really were delivering a lot of mental health care 100 years ago, I think many people would benefit from that modality of treatment. But you would have to go see your provider three times a week for the rest of your life, right? So if you are able to go from that type of care model to you know, what we've achieved in one of our um, hallmark programs, which is we've shown that about 88% of patients can achieve clinically meaningful improvement, which we define as reliable clinical improvement or recovery on the PHQ-9 or GAD-7 in about six sessions of care, you're basically that's like an order of magnitude or multiple orders of magnitude in terms of the number of providers, uh, the number of patients a provider can see over the course of a year, over the course of their lifetime, by really making that episode of treatment uh, much, much more efficient through technology. Hey, Connie, can you double click on, on how you achieve those unit economics while keeping the bar high on quality? Like, like take us into your, your life leading a clinical org for a second and to help us understand what 
what key decisions you have to make and experiments you have to run along the way to achieve that? What's um, your framework? Yeah, I th it's a, um, let's see. I would start with a really simple answer. And I know this is a, a health tech talk, so this is less on the tech and more on the healthcare. And I do think there's something about truly and deeply valuing quality <laughs> as an organization. Now, I, I, I do think that there are a lot of companies out there who talk about clinical quality and, and pay lip service to it. But at the end of the day, when you are making internal decisions, whether it's, you know, am I, I have a, you know, finite technology roadmap. Am I going to build a provider facing tool or am I going to build like a snazzy uh, thing that the go to market team wants? You know, are you going to make the investment on the provider side because you believe it's an enabling? Um, so I think it just starts with kind of that deep internal north like north star for the company culture like, you're saying it's yeah, it's it exactly. comes out of the company's culture i think one of the things mm -hmm. really special for lyra twofold and you know when i um was looking back to when i was looking for my next role and talking to a bunch of companies you know the commitment to clinical quality really stood out for me at lyra um, and i think it comes from two places one was you know, um, our CEO, David Ebersman, really founded Lyra out of like a personal experience um, searching for care for his family, where he found that there was tremendous challenges as it relates to access in mental health care, but that also <laughs> mental health care is really interesting in that, unlike the rest of, I think, physical medicine, where, you know, internal medicine, we have really great clinical guidelines based on large RCTs that really guide, you know, our treatment protocols, mental health is really the wild, wild west. So, um, you know, David really saw that opportunity, really believed that being committed to evidence-based mental health care would be sort of like the durable differentiator for Lyra. And then the second is just the commitment to clinical science to support that sort of culture and mission. You know, David, our CEO, spent two decades of his career at Genentech. Um, and, you know, if you, if you look at look to the biotech industry, I think they're, they set the gold standard in terms of how to think rigorous, rigorously about clinical evidence and clinical data. Um, so yeah, that was a long way. So how, how do you move the needle yeah. on that data to achieve, to achieve the nonlinear tech enabled breakthrough where, you know, care actually looks different and you actually get to a different quality bar to your point. How do you do that in baby steps? in such a way that, you know, you don't crash and burn along the way or that you don't importantly harm any patients along the way. What's the, how, how do you iterate as a team that's as large as yours now? How many, maybe you could remind everybody how big, how big the team has scaled to. So we, so Lyra has about, we have about 5,000 um, providers at Lyra. That is separated wow. between our contract network and yep. providers that we, um, employ. Um, and it's an interesting story. You know, I think the, the transition towards more of an employment model at Lyra is probably similar to what many digital health companies have, have experienced, which was a recognition that to really drive quality, you need a really deep partnership with your clinicians that really has a long-term mindset. Um, and is deeply integrated with technology, which is hard to do if you are um, scaling through contractors alone, right? 
Okay. Uh, so fully employing all of your clinicians was a key organizational decision, it sounds yeah. like, that you made. Um, and then how, how do you get that many people to, to row in one boat and do things the Lira way? You know, um, so the growth of the, uh, of our transit or the transition to, uh, to our employment model has been probably somewhat more linear than to some degree we would want it to be. You know, I think you do sacrifice speed and agility, right? Because when we are employing clinicians, that that isn't the only output, right? So we have to build and scale our internal clinical quality team to really ensure that we are running a really robust and rigorous recruiting and vetting process. So mm -hmm. we remain incredibly selective in terms of the clinicians we bring on board. So I think our higher rate right now is somewhere between five and 8%. Um, and then we've also invested heavily in internal training and both upfront and on an ongoing basis. So, you know, that is a critical business decision, which is like, what are the productivity expectations that you're going to set for your clinicians? And what, and that's a dial, right? How mm -hmm. much are you going to invest internally in their ongoing development versus how much is it about their output? And for us at Lyra, we, we believe that again, it's a long-term investment. So from what I, the sense I get is we probably index quite a bit more in terms of the amount of time we invest in our providers, whether it's in terms of clinical training, group consultation, individual consultation, um, other sort of like opportunities for professional development, um, listening groups, all sorts of things. So I think it's it's been kind of thinking holistically about what would the best providers want in terms of a career and how do we support that in all the aspects that they're they would desire. Yeah, so to what pull about out a couple, oh, go ahead. Oh, maybe I'll just summarize, um, Connie, your answer back just for the digital health founders listening in. It sounds like you made a couple of very purposeful decisions, which all digital health founders, you know, with doing care delivery need to navigate, which is one, do you have clinicians who are contractors or fully employed? Two, how much do you invest in training them and actually providing career development for them as compared to you know, kind of expecting that to be something that they've already done prior to joining your organization. And then three, how do you, what are the standards that, um, that motivate them and incent them to continue to do a great job? Is it productivity? Is it quality? And kind of being very um, purposeful and intentional about how you de design those um, are great lessons. Jorge, please go ahead. Yeah, no, and I actually, uh, to, to piggyback on that, it, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're being so thoughtful on the inputs um, Connie, you, you alluded to this in terms of the outputs, you know, if you're, if you're measuring outcomes and you want to make sure that, that you're being very rigorous, um, in terms of, of, of the clinical outcomes, is there a general agreement in what good looks like or excellence looks like in terms of outcomes, or is that something that you have to help invent? Absolutely. Um, we're lucky in that. While I think community-based 
practice is often not evidence-based. There is actually good clinical literature around um, kind of benchmarks in mental health that we, we utilize. Um, and we're extremely explicit about our benchmarks with our providers. So um, even in the hiring process, we, we try our best to be as, as clear as we can be about our expe expectations around quality and outcomes. And that is an ongoing discussion that we have with every single provider once they start at Lyra. And our ability, I think, to be effective around outcomes is tied to the fact that, you know, we've built our internal practice management platform that all of our providers use every single day in, in tandem with the values that we've established. So if you think about traditional EHRs, I think what they are really set up for is billing, especially fee-for-service billing. You know, all of our provider tooling is built from the ground up with one, a specialization in the things that are unique to mental health. And then two, really a focus on how do we enable providers to deliver better care as measured by more, a higher percentage of their patients get better and they get better faster. And, you know, we're able to sort of document every interaction um, that happens and use that data to drive internal learnings as it relates to future product development or training and ongoing support for our providers. I want to go back to the scale of the org that you described, so 5,000 clinicians. Can you tell us a little bit about how the you know, how the chief medical officers org, like how, how the people that, that you're kind of responsible for, for managing and growing over time is actually structured, you know, yeah, so I should, and I how should it grew to be that, that big. <laughs> yeah. So again, so the 5,000 clinicians are split between a contractor org and a, mm -hmm. um, an employed org. So the way the clinical operations part of uh, the house is set up for me today is we have a network team that works with um, all of the contracted um, providers. And most of our relationship with our contracted providers relates to how do we make sure that we vet providers upfront and make sure that they are super high quality, really um, clinically excellent. And then it is more hands-off afterwards. You know, we do get uh, real-time data in terms of the outcomes that their patients are achieving. So we use that and review that um, every week to figure out, you know, are there providers that we need to sort of work with um, because we have some sort of concern. For the, um, em the employed clinicians, um, the, the org is split up into a strategy and operations org. Um, and then there's like a clinical quality org. So the clinical quality org is a team of um, of clinicians who we tend to recruit out of really like top academic institutions. These are often clinicians who prior to coming Lyra were running training programs, really passionate about teaching evidence-based mental health care. Um, and they are responsible for cohorts of therapists who, um, who kind of start at Lyra as a class, we build community that way. And uh, they are really responsible for the clinical quality of the care that is delivered. Um, the reporting, it's a bit complicated. It's, it's matrixed essentially. So the, 
the clinical quality feedback and decision-making chain goes up the clinical quality org, but for things like productivity um, and other aspects of um, employment that is handled by our strategy and operational teams. So you get a little bit of like a good cop, bad cop dynamic, which has its challenges, but also mm. we find helpful in terms of preserving mm-hmm. um, the preserving a relationship between clinicians that is more purely clinical. Super interesting. Hey, Connie, what, um, most this is fascinating and, and just hearing about the scale of how you've been able to build things internally. I'm curious also, you know, one of the um, things that, you know, skeptics looking at the, the digital health space often say is, you know, with, with the rise of all these digital health companies, care has, you know, we're at risk of care becoming so fragmented because we now have all these different centers of gravity that, you know, just focus on one condition area. And if I'm a patient with comorbidities or even, you know, coordinating with my primary care doctor, um, you know, do things just start to fall through the cracks because you've got, you know, seven different apps, so to speak, that you need to go to um, to get your full care journey. I would love to hear your, your framework and point of view on that. And maybe even if you can share anything tactically about how Lyra has um, addressed that potential risk uh, in terms of relationships with outside providers who might also be treating or, you know, seeing other aspects of, of the patients that are being um, that are being served by, by Lyra. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hard one to solve. I think, you know, we are a mental health provider. So where we have um, I think achieved a lot of progress and are really proud of the experience is the, co- the collaboration and coordination between therapy and psychiatry. So we do have um, mechanisms internally, whether it's through our internal practice management platform or otherwise for therapists and psychiatrists to collaborate closely around patients who may be in um, receiving care from both providers simultaneously. I will say the thing that we have not figured out is the coordination of care um, with external providers or with primary care. Um, what we really do today is really old fashioned, which is we really do a lot of calling external providers on the phone. We do a lot of you know, faxing of records. Um, so you know, I don't think we've figured out a turnkey solution other than we do protect and defend time for our employed clinicians to invest in care coordination because we think it's it is critically important. Um, and even even if it's nothing but you know calling the primary care doctor to to give them an update on their on their patient after we have a release of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Super helpful to hear that there's that that nut is hard to crack, and it's a uh, it's a it's a common. Um, sentiment, I think, amongst many founders that we talk to, it's 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 a hard thing to to get right and create that connective tissue holistically. And it's gated on the lowest common denominator, right? <laughs> Whatever tech stack um, exactly. one party among many are on is, is kind of where you have to converge, and that might be the fax machine. <clears throat> is there a limit, um, or have you seen a, a, a limitation to what you can't do by not being in the room? So, like, is there sort of a natural, um, uh, uh, you know, r- ring fence around what what Lara is going to solve in, in in this space versus what you would do in your traditional, more traditional approaches that don't require technology? Definitely, I think there are um, certainly limitations, and I think that is actually one of Lara's strengths. So, I should probably mention that we we provide in person and digital care. 
So one of the one of the things that we have seen as it relates to both patient preference and clinical need is that um, while we think the transition to digital health is going to be one that is powerful and long lasting, certainly we're not going to stay in a world of 100% virtual. If I were to guess, um, so Lyra prior to COVID was about 50-50, 50% in person, 50% uh, virtual visits. Um, at the height of COVID, we were probably, I don't know, 97% video, 3% in person. We're probably, you know, we were looking at the data in the last month, it looks like we're getting back to about 90% or we're coming back to about 90% video, 10% in-person. So we're seeing in-person demand return. Um, anecdotally, I've asked our data team to dig into this. We're seeing that you know, the return to in-person is more prominent in states that have opened up more, but also in industries where I would guess most employees are vaccinated, like healthcare. Um, if I were to bet, I think we're going to land in a world that's 70% video, 30% in-person. And I think the in-person component really will have two drivers. One is there are still a lot of patients who their mental model of going to therapy is being in the room with the therapist and they just don't want to do a video session. Like they will do it if they absolutely have to, but they have a strong preference for in-person. Um, a good example of that is we've seen a lot more requests recently of parents who want in-person um, sessions for their children. You know, they feel like their kids are on Zoom all day for school and the last thing they want them to do is go see a Zoom therapist. Um, and the second part of it is just clinical, right? So we still feel like there are a bunch of clinical conditions for which in-person care is better, right? So I think some of our high, highest risk clients who are endorsing active suicidality with a planner intent, people who are in, um, you know, violent or unsafe relationships, um, patients who are psychotic, um, you know, there are a bunch of kind of more severe and complex clinical issues where in-person care is still, I think, in a perfect world, better than, than video. That makes, that makes all sense in the world. It's interesting to see, it's interesting to see that you're, you're I know, I know it's a guess, but that your guess is that the, that the equilibrium state post-COVID will be 70-30. Yeah, so I think definitely still a lot more video than we saw pre-COVID, um, but it's not going to be 100%. What was something that surprised you or that was kind of way harder than you thought it would be when you, when, since you joined? Ugh, where do I start? <laughs> uh, let's see. I think... Um, I think it's like so open-ended. Um, well, or, may, or maybe another way to frame it is maybe something where you, where you concluded that maybe this is something we don't build, something we buy, or something, you know, something that it seemed like it was unusually difficult to crack entirely internally. I think there we haven't seen things that we could not crack internally, but that's not to say that we've been able to do everything ourselves. I think one of the things I have loved about Lyra is just a discipline as it relates to our roadmap. Um, you know, I think companies, I guess some companies <laughs> uh, do this, but 
I think it's hard to be everything to everyone and to do everything. And even, um, even though we are a mental health specialist, mental health and behavioral health is a big universe. Um, so, you know, one of the decisions that we've made internally is that we feel that we should really be aware of where our superpowers are. And we really feel like that is at the intersection of kind of where differentiated clinical quality and amazing technology can drive um, kind of outsized gains as it relates to you know, clinical improvement and treatment efficiency. The things where we feel, there are a bunch of things in mental health where we think other people are doing well and that there are a lot of players in the space. So an example would be um, mindfulness. I think there's a lot of great mindfulness and meditation apps out there. We partner with a number of them. Um, and I think just recognizing what you're gonna build internally versus partner. Um, kind of helps you avoid the situation where you're trying to take on a bunch of things and realize, I think it's hard to do our, you know, to try and do everything at the same time, do it well. Yeah, super interesting that as you scale, you know, Julie has a whole thesis around how digital health companies, you know, eventually partner with other digital health companies to sort of fill out their own tech stacks. And it's interesting that you're starting to see places like, for example, the mindfulness app you know, where maybe you don't have to reinvent the wheel um, yourself because there are multiple digital health, behavioral health companies, which we would, you know, may not have anticipated several years ago. Yeah, for sure. 